0: Psalm 1, let's read it. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked." They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Lord, I just want to thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for this amazing uh, book the Bible, Lord. It's your communication to us. You are the divine author. Even though there's human authors, you are the divine author and you speak to us through these words. And Lord, I I just love Psalm 1. There's such a powerful contrast between those who love you and fear you and walk with you, Lord. Your promise of uh, blessing, Lord, and uh, fruitfulness, Lord. That's so exciting. And then we read of those who don't know you and often who are rebelling and yeah, there's, they're just described as chaff, which is lack of substance. And Lord, I pray tonight that we will, Lord, as your children, have a greater impact in our region and bringing this wonderful message of your love, your hope, your grace into people's lives, Lord, so that they too can experience your mercy and goodness, So oh God. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles. Uh, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. And uh, I've been doing a little mini-series on the parables of Jesus. Now, you know, you know, there's certain stories in the Bible that we probably, even if we don't know the Bible very well, we probably heard the story of a young man by the name of David. And David goes out and he fights this huge giant. How many have heard the story of David and Goliath? Just raise your hand. You've actually heard the story of David and Goliath. That's great. I love it. It's an epic story. You know, you you, you talk about heroes, you talk about exciting stories. This is an epic story. And it's epic in so many ways because David is the youngest son of. Eight boys. Can you can imagine being the, you know, the runt of the litter, so to speak? And, and when Samuel the prophet shows up and is going to anoint one of these boys to be king, Jesse, David's father, doesn't even ask David to show up. So, you know, he's not even on the radar screen, and yet he's God's choice. How many already go, I like this story? Because, you know, we can all identify with people who are, you know, despised or forgotten or neglected or rejected. We just kind of relate to the story. And then as we continue to read the story in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David shows up. And, and you know what's fascinating is that the Bible rarely gives us physical descriptions of people. I don't know if you know that. And, the re- and when it does, it's so rare. When it does, there's always a reason for it. And you have this amazing description of a man named Goliath. He's the, he's the champion of the Philistines, which are God's people's enemies and they're in a battle formation and they've been there for 40 days and 40 is always a very profound uh, number in the Bible it speaks of a test a complete test and here he is railing on the you know the people of God and nobody steps up to the battle nobody wants to take on the giant he's described as 9 feet tall you know I've I've seen a few people over 7 feet that's pretty imposing can you imagine someone that's 9 feet tall That would be pretty imposing, wouldn't it? Could you just sense the intimidation? And they go, Hey, why bother having two armies clash? Just send out a champion. They'll be go at it. And whoever's champion wins, the other, uh, all the nation will have to submit to that other nation, you know? And uh, King Saul's the king. You think the leader would step up to the fray? He's terrified. Everybody's shaking in their boots. And David walks up. And David says, Hey, I'll take this guy on. And we kind of look at this and go, where is he coming from? But David was a man of courage, was he not? And why did he have courage? Because he knew his God. He had been tending the flock, and while he was doing that, David had encountered some great crisis in his life. A lion had come to devour the flock, and David had killed the lion. And then later on, a bear came to attack the flock and David had killed the bear. And so David had had this amazing experience where God was using his life. David was a man of courage. And the reason why David was a man of courage is because he knew God. And he was able to face the giant. And when David came, it was so, you know, you read the story. He didn't wear Saul's armor, but he picked up five smooth stones from a brook and ran out to meet the giant. And the giant was scoffing, hey, you're sending out a kid to fight against me. And and, uh, David says, well, I'll tell you what, you're going to come down. See, David thought in his mind, you're so big, I can't miss you. You know, And he threw that stone, hit him right between the eyes, and he fell face first because Goliath had defied the armies of the living God and by doing that had defied the name of God. And David knew that this giant had no hope, not because David was so courageous, but David had a great God and he knew his great God was gonna come through and he did and this giant capitulated and David raced up to him Probably stunned him, pulled out his huge sword, and took his head right off. And I'll tell you, a pretty gory scene, right? All the junior hires love this story. I spoke at a camp. I'm standing on a chair trying to be Goliath. You know, I'm shouting down to the kids. You know, it's just this, they're screaming. You know, we get into it when I speak at a kid's camp. It's a lot of fun. You know, they're screaming away. And how many know it's an awesome story? You, you, just, you just love this story. But there's a reason for me telling you this story. The Bible says in the book of Acts, when Paul is preaching his sermon, it said, David, the son of Jesse, was a man after the heart of God. Why was he a man after God's heart? Because God knew he would do what he wanted him to do. And David, for the most part in his life, was a man who followed God. He had an obedient heart. He had the right kind of a heart. He had a courageous heart. And I want to talk about a giant today that you and I are battling. And a lot of us are cowering. We don't want to have a fight with this Goliath. You know, we'll say, send somebody else out there. You know, let them take this giant on. You go, what giant are you talking about? Well, you're going to find out in a few moments. You know, there is a, a sense in our culture, there's a cynicism towards spiritual things. How many have kind of picked that up? You know, as a culture, we've got that. And H.L. Uh, Mencken was a, a very cynical American editor, and he, he defined faith as an illogical belief in the, occurrence, in the occurrence of the impossible. You know, that was how he described faith. You know, Mark Twain once said, through one of his characters, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Well, come on now, that's just superstition. Christianity is a faith that rests on some very solid foundations. The difference between a Christian believer and a person who's not a believer is not that one has faith and the other does not. How many know everybody has faith? Everybody has faith. Some people have faith in our society. Some people have faith in technology. And As a matter of fact, I would say today you all exhibited faith when you drove here. You had faith that the other person would stay on their side of the road, did you not? Or you wouldn't have ventured out. You had faith that when you step into an elevator that somebody has built it right and that they're maintaining you know, the maintenance on that elevator, you wouldn't step on an elevator on the 25th floor going down. True that takes faith, but we don't think about that. So, everybody has faith. It's just, you know, the issue is that if we have faith, the faith, it's about the difference is the object of our faith. And for a child of God, our faith is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's based upon the Word of God. And that's where we can have confidence. So, in light, Of all of this, in light of the fact that God's word is so powerful, how in the world can people resist God's word? Isn't that a great question? I mean, think about what Hebrews has to say. Hebrews says, the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the hearts. How many here can honestly say, pastor, God's word is so powerful. I've experienced it in my life. I've been convicted by it. I've been challenged by it. I've been comforted by it? Isn't that true? It's not, the, it's not the same. This is not an ordinary book. This is a unique book. Why? Because it has not only many human authors, but ultimately it has a divine author. And it has a power to change our lives. So then, how do people resist it? Well, earlier in that chapter in the book of Hebrews, it says, For we have We also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. And so what he's basically saying is it takes a right heart condition in order to experience God's power in our lives. So that brings me to my basic premise tonight, which is simply, where is our hearts? What condition is our heart in? I'm gonna think once in a while, it's probably good to take a little checkup, find out, hey, am I still breathing? You know? <laughs> am I still functioning? I mean, where am I at? And, and I'm not just talking about in a natural level, I'm talking about in a spiritual realm. Do you know often in the life of Jesus, people would be following him, but they followed for the wrong reasons. And John tells us that in John chapter six. He said, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You know, Jesus recognizes a bunch of people falling because they had fish and chips. Anytime you give people something free, they're, they're there, right? And we even do that as a church. You know, every once a year we have an annual event and we give people free hamburgers and hot dogs and, you know, thousand or so plus people show up because it's free, right? People like free food. And, you know, if you, if you give people what they want, they're going to show up. And, you know, that's true. Jesus did some ma- amazing things and people showed up. But I noticed one thing that Jesus did was that he was concerned, not only about how many people there were, but Jesus was actually more concerned about what was happening inside of people. And he had a way of getting to the heart of the matter. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I'll tell you, Jesus did some things that some of us today would have a problem with. And I'll give you an example. Jesus is rolling along. He's got huge crowds following him. I mean, if he wanted to be popular, just keep doing what he's doing, right? But what does he do? He has a little message on, if you want to really follow me, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. Now, how many know that did not fly with most people? And then we read a little later on in the sixth chapter where it says, on hearing that, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. I mean, who's going to accept this? And then we read a little further on in that same chapter. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now I can just imagine some, you know, some of the maybe denominational leaders or some, you know, teachers at Bible college, you know, trying to grow a church would say, you know, listen, if he, this is not how you grow a church, Jesus. You don't say those kinds of things. I mean, we would be trying to straighten Jesus out. True, it's true. But, you know, Jesus does a few things, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because every once in a while, Jesus offends us. He offends our sensibilities. He really does. He shocks us. You know, I want to say to you that the giant we want to talk about today is really the giant of, you know, trying to make sure we don't alienate and offend anybody. It's a big giant in our culture. I mean, wouldn't you say that being Canadian... I mean, think about it. being a Canadian. This is what we're like. You know, we stand in lines, right? And if I say to somebody in the line, "Listen, I need to go over there and just, just go get something. Could you hold my place in line?" What do you think the person behind me is uh, behind me is going to say? Yeah, no problem. And so I could walk over there and do something and two minutes later come back to my place in line and nobody in the line says anything. Everybody accepts that. Why? Because we're Canadian, right? That's the way we are. You know, we don't want to offend anybody. Isn't that kind of true? You know, we don't want to alienate. We don't want to offend anybody. Can I tell you, Jesus offended people. Jesus was not a good Canadian. I'm just pointing that out, you know? And I'm gonna say something that may be a little shocking to you. Sometimes to be a good Christian, you have to be a bad Canadian. Now I'm getting, it's getting quiet. You're going, what are you saying? I'm saying sometimes we have to go outside of who we are, outside of our cultural wiring, outside of our makeup to become more like Christ. And we're gonna get to that. You'll see what I'm talking about. Well, Let's take a look at this parable, you know, because Jesus, you know, as the crowds were large, he wanted people to get serious, and so he changed the way he was teaching, and he started going into a form called a parable, and a parable was designed to make people get serious about following him and move them away from being a superficial person. And there's a time in our life where God does do that to us. He moves us away from being superficial. He challenges us. And so here we pick up the story in Luke chapter 8 and verse 4. It says, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after time, town, excuse me, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Now you gotta you gotta go outside of Canada again because you know they didn't have heavy-duty machinery with all the you know computers and you know how fast you could cultivate and the rest of it. You got a picture of the farmer as a guy walking along with a little bag on his hip, and he's reaching into the pouch and he's throwing seed on a little plot of ground. Okay, this is the picture that Jesus is painting. This is how they farm. Armed. this is not a big operation okay everybody get that it says some fell on rocky ground and when it came up the plant withered because it had no moisture other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and it choked the plants still other seed fell on good soil it came up yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown and when he had said this he called out whoever has ears to hear let them hear now when Jesus says when you have ears to hear, let them hear. He's not saying, hear my voice. What he's saying is, when you get what I'm saying, do it. So there's a connection between hearing what God is saying and doing what God is saying. And I'm going to suggest to us tonight that one of the dangers that we have is that we have information and knowledge without application. And it's a very dangerous place to get to because sometimes when we have a lot of knowledge, we start assuming that because we know something, we're actually doing it. And that's a a deceived state of mind. Just because we understand something, we're not experiencing it until we're actually acting on what is being said. So, aren't you glad that the disciples were a little bit slow and dull? You know, we we can criticize these guys, but let's face it if Jesus had told us this parable, we would have probably said, okay, uh, what does this mean? And that's the whole point. A parable is designed for you and I to ask the question what is this about? And so when afterwards, when they had Jesus alone to themselves, they said, Jesus, you know, we didn't quite get what you were talking about. Could you please explain this parable? How many are glad they did that so that you and I don't put our own spin on the story, but we actually hear what Jesus actually meant when he told this parable? And so he does. He begins to explain it. Now, there are two elements that I want us to look at in this parable. And, there, and there's two, two elements that I think are very powerful. And, the, and it's really how we're going to respond to God's word. And the first one is, are we willing to spread it? Are we willing to be a sower? You know, I could have easily just focused on the four conditions of the heart, but I I really believe that the fact that we will or will not spread it is actually representing truly a condition of our own heart, and so I think it's important we look at it. Here we see the farmer goes out to sow. Now, in our minds, it could be any farmer in Israel that was walking around throwing seed, but I have a funny feeling as Jesus begins to explain it, we get a picture that this is probably Jesus doing it, because... Here's the meaning in verse 11 of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Now, who is sharing the word of God at that point? Well, Jesus was. Now, if you and I are going to be sowers of seed, then we're going to be like Christ. He's a sower of seed. We're going to be like him in doing that ourselves. And, you know, it's very important that we actually share the gospel, Well, let me give you what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He's talking about how do we be saved. He said you have to believe in your heart that Christ, you know, is who he says he is. He's God in the flesh and that he died for our sins and that he rose again. We believe this in our heart and then we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we do that, the Bible says we are saved. It's not, you know, it's what we're believing in what Jesus did. It's not something we did, it's what he did. And we believe it, and we accept it, and we communicate it. Now, listen to what Paul writes here in verse 14. That's verses 9 and 10 in Romans. But verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So already now, preaching is an important ingredient. And how many know that you get all kinds of resistance when people think you're preaching to them? Oh, you're gonna get a lot of resistance. True? That's true. Now, you know, I'm gonna just say something about our culture. You know, Canadians... You know, we, we, we want to be private. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We want to do our own thing. We want to justify our behavior. We don't want anybody telling us we're doing the wrong thing. Can I describe? That's kind of what the way we are. Isn't that kind of being Canadian, you know? Uh, you know, we're, we're all polite, but deep down inside, we're all frustrated. Come on now. You know, we don't always say what we think, but we do a lot of thinking you know, and when people do something dumb or something that annoys us, we may not always tell them, but deep down inside, we're thinking it. Yeah. But we're Canadian. So we don't always say what we're thinking. True? Yeah. Oh, totally. That's the way it works. And so, you know, we watch what people are doing, and we can see that they're, you know, they're living a disastrous life, and uh, we just don't want to offend them. So we don't tell them they're messed up, you know, but they are messed up. They're just doing stupid stuff. We would rather not offend people, but we're okay with letting them perish. You see, if we really believe that people without Christ are eternally lost, and we say nothing to them because we don't want to offend them, you know, it it, it sounds like we're being really nice, but I'm not so convinced we're that nice. See, I don't think as Canadians we're as nice as we think we are. You know, I just think we don't want to offend anybody. And I think the reason we don't want to offend anybody is we don't want any backlash. We don't want the hassle. We don't want somebody, you know, say something. You know, it was really funny. I'm walking along, and I'm in the States now. I'm on vacation. I'm walking along, and there's a big sign that says, Do not feed the ducks. Huge sign. Then there's a whole explanation of why you shouldn't do it, because it creates... It affects their whole system and when they discharge, it actually has a negative impact on the lake. Okay, they figured all this out. Big sign. Please do not feed the ducks. And here's this guy. He's feeding the ducks with his little kid. You know, by the sign. I go, Did you read the sign? He goes, Do you he says to me, Do you work here? I said, No. And then he just started swearing at me and getting all upset and telling me it's none of my business. I'm going, excuse me, this is everyone's business. Isn't that true? But we don't want to, you know, good Canadian wouldn't have said anything, but I'm just going, this is so stupid. Here's the sign. It's telling him what not to do, and he's violating the sign, and he's doing it right with his child there, teaching him a whole way of disobedience. And then afterwards, when I walked away, I mean, you know, I didn't enjoy being screamed at by this person and sweared at, but I'm just thinking, this guy's an idiot. Because look what he's teaching his kid, right? Don't you, can you see what I'm saying? He's basically saying, who cares about anything? I'll do my thing, thank you very much, and I will communicate in a way that's terrible. And he's training his child to be just like his dad. I'm going, that is tragic. Do you think most people think this way? They cannot see how the lines all connect. I can tell you that. People don't think that way. Okay, how powerful is God's word? Are we convinced it has transforming power? You know, I was reading a beautiful story by Haddon Robinson. Haddon Robinson is actually, I think he's, he's now the president of Gordon-Conwell in the United States. You know, he's a great preacher, and he teaches preaching the preachers. And when he was working on his PhD in the University of Illinois, you know, one of the things you have to have is a faculty advisor, and so, you know, he was, just came there, and and so they said, well, maybe if, you know, they're trying to help them find a faculty advisor. They didn't just assign it. You have to go search one out. And they said, maybe you ought to go meet this guy. His name is Dr. Otto Dieter. And he's a classicist. I mean, he's a guy that studies the classics and teaches on it. And he's at the library. So maybe you want to go over there and ask him to be your faculty advisor. So hadn't Robinson goes over there, and he meets the guy and says would you consider being my faculty advisor? And he said, well, Haddon, what do you plan to do with your PhD? He says, well, I, I, plan, I plan to teach preachers. And then uh, Dr. Dieter said, well, do you think you need the Holy Spirit to preach? And he said, well, of course you need the Holy Spirit to preach. Well, he says, you're out of luck because he hasn't been on this campus for the past 50 years. <laughs> He was basically saying that the people in the school had kind of abandoned, you know, any belief in God. But obviously, Dr. Dieters, you're going to see, didn't think the same way. And they was we they were chatting, there was an old pulpit Bible. You know how they kind of sometimes have dictionaries on those little pedestals on the table? And it happened to be an old pulpit Bible. And so he, he looked over and he said, do you plan to preach that, you know, the Bible? And Haddon said, of course I do. And then he said, well, you know, I've read all the classes. I've read, I've studied all of these guys. And you know what I've discovered? No one that I know of has ever had their life changed by reading the classics. But I do know some people whose lives have been changed by reading the Bible. Folks, there is power in the Word of God. So we need to understand something. When we go to people and we share the Word of God with them, even though you may get a negative reaction, You're going to get some reaction. You're going to be planting, or you're going to be watering, or you may be harvesting, but God's word does not come back without accomplishing what it sets itself out to do. And what God is looking for is people who are willing to communicate his word with other people. He's looking for that. What a powerful thing. You know, it's interesting. You know, Jesus did all kinds of stuff, he kind of broke the mold. How many know that? You know, here he is traveling, and he's got a bunch of women traveling with him. You know, uh, one of the scholars, Leon Morris, pointed out, he said, the rabbis in Jesus' day refused to teach women and generally assigned them a very inferior place. But Jesus freely admitted them into fellowship, as on this occasion, and accepted their service. If you read the first three verses of chapter 8, you'll find this out. See, Jesus is interested in communicating with people. And he's not hung up on gender. You know, we're the ones that are all hung up on this stuff. He's communicating the word of God. And it's interesting that the first communicators of actually the gospel story were women, you know, which really annoys some guys. I don't know why, but, you know, they were the ones that, you know, came back from the tomb and said, he's, he's alive, you know. And the disciples go, Really? They just thought, no, poor ladies, you know, they're just hysterical. But, you know, some of them, I'm, I'm serious, they probably thought that, but a few of them ran out to check it out. When they got there, the body was gone, and then they they started running into angels and had all kinds of interesting experiences. But let me move on to the second element. So the first one is simply, you know, is a willingness to spread the word of God. And I believe that when we do that, we have the right heart condition. You have to have the right heart condition to do it. You wouldn't do it if you didn't have it. You know, secondly, is our heart condition. You know, here we recognize that there's a number of heart conditions that Jesus is talking about. And so he begins to explain here in Luke chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. He said... Verse 12, those along the path, he's talking about how the seed fell on the path, are the ones, remember the birds came and ate them up? Well, here he says, these are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, how many, you know, every time you're communicating the word of God with somebody, there's only a number of responses that can happen. One No good response. They're not getting it. They walk away. They didn't understand it. Jesus is saying that's because what's happening is there's a demonic activity taking away that life-giving word from their lives. Now, I've seen this so demonstrated in my own life. Years ago, Patty's sister and brother-in-law, who lived in Alaska, and they moved many times. So they came down from Alaska to visit us. We're in Bible College in Seattle, And when they came to visit us, I'm an eager Bible college student. You have to understand, I've always been this passionate about sharing, you know, And I've gotten into people's spaces, and I've had people tell me I'm demon-possessed. I've had all kinds of accusations, you know. You're insane, you know. Would you please be quiet? We don't want to hear this, you know. People tried to get me fired from my job. I've gone through all kinds of experiences, so I know what I'm talking about. So here I am. We buy them Bibles. I'm explaining the gospel to them. Okay, you follow this? They didn't respond. I thought, boy, you know, we did such a good job of explaining this. You know, I thought they'd get saved, but they didn't get saved. But we kept praying for them. And then they moved to Colorado. And we went down to Colorado to visit them. I've spent a lot of money visiting Patty's family. They're all over the country, you know? And so they never visit us hardly, but we visit them. So we're down in Colorado visiting with them, and you know what I do? I share the gospel. Every chance I get explaining it to them. They then move to Montana. So guess what? We went down to Montana to visit them. I share the gospel with them every time I'm with them, you know? Then they moved back to Colorado. We went back down to Colorado, and I shared again with them. And then one day we get a phone call. And it's Patty's sister. And she goes, praise God, we got saved. And Patty goes, yay, praise the Lord. And then she says, why didn't you guys ever tell us about this? <laughs> I go, what? You know, where were you guys? In Seattle and Like, and You know, I had a whole time, all this time I'd been sharing with them. But what you need to understand is when you're sharing with people, when they don't respond, what's going on is the seed Is being snatched away, and also the seed is being planted, and it took time for that seed to be cultivated, so they could not remember all the times that we had talked to them about it. You know, especially me, I'm the worst one. You know, I I will talk about it and bring it up in many different ways. So, why is it? uh, What happens to a person to bring them to a place? where they cannot hear God? When did he close his mind and shut off his feelings and refuse to discern and do the will of God? When does that happen in our lives as believers? I'm gonna talk about that because, you know, this condition of a closed heart or a hard heart, it's not just non-believers that have it. And I know this for a fact because I've got experience, a lot of it with people. I've been at this for over 30 years, so I've observed these certain behaviors. Do you know what happens when people hurt us? you know what we start to do? We have a tendency to withdraw. How many know that's kind of true? We have a tendency when people create pain in our life and they hurt us, we close off. And we start to do something to protect ourselves. We withdraw and our heart gets a little hard. I'm gonna suggest a thought to us that, you know, in our relationships with people, we have to maintain a forgiving heart. Because if we don't do that, what happens is our heart gets hard. You know, why do people who at one time were madly in love with each other and you know, focused on each other and shared all their secrets and joys and could hardly wait to spend time together and then they, they decide to get married, to spend the rest of their lives together and then a number of years later they want nothing to do with each other? Why is, what, what causes divorce? Want me to tell you? What causes it? Jesus tells us. He said, people's hearts get hard. That's why there's divorce. It's the hardness of your heart, Jesus said. That's why Moses allowed divorce, because he knew the nature of the human heart. Because what happens in a relation is a person says something or does something. It creates pain in our life. And, you know, the first time, okay, you know, I really love this person. I can forgive them. And then they do it again. And then I forgive them again. And then they do it again. And I forgive them again. And after a while, they just keep doing it over and over. And even though I've told them this is painful, they just keep doing it and doing it. And the Bible says, how many times am I supposed to forgive this person? How many, Rob? Do you know? No, wrong answer. It's not 70 times seven. Jesus said, it's an unlimited amount. Wow. It means I have to have a forgiving spirit. It means I have to guard my heart against allowing resentment to build up inside of me. You know, it's interesting in the book of Colossians, it says, husbands, don't be bitter towards your wives. How can a husband get bitter toward his wife? Because eventually he stops forgiving and he allows resentment to build up inside there. He shuts off. You see, it's easy to allow our hearts to get hard, but the only problem when we have a hard heart towards a human being, our hearts are no longer able to hear God's voice. You know, people who can say to me, you know, pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm walking with God and yet my, my life and relationships with people are crumbling. I'm going, no, you're not doing good with God either because your heart is not tender. And what I pray for every single day is God, give me a tender. Give me a broken, loving, gracious heart, a forgiving heart and help me to keep loving people even when they don't deserve to be loved. I don't want to ever have a hard heart, oh God. Protect my heart. The Bible says, guard your heart, for in it are all the issues of life. Do you realize how critical this is? This is so important. It says, you know, if a husband has an attitude towards his wife, his prayers won't even be heard. Listen, I can't afford to not have my prayers heard. Amen? I'm in trouble if I can't have my prayers heard. I'm in trouble, God, if you won't listen to me. I mean, I am so needy. I know I need you. I cannot afford to have unresolved interpersonal issues with people. I'm telling you right now. You say, yeah, but they wronged me. They hurt me. Yes, that may be true. Pastor, how can you trust a person? I don't trust them, but I gotta love them. How's that? I've gotta forgive them. I just may not allow them to, you know, I may set some healthy boundaries. That's okay. I can do that. I think that's wisdom on our part. Wow. Is that powerful? Yeah. Another way that hardness occurs in our soul is when we don't act in obedience on God's word. We get hard. We don't, you know... Whenever we have a conviction we do not live out, we block our sensitivity to hear further truth. Why is God going to tell you more if you're not doing what he's already told you? I don't know about you, but I want to keep growing. I want to keep developing. I want to keep getting closer to God, but I've got to obey God. And if I refuse to obey what God's telling me to do, why is God going to tell me to do something else? You know, it's, you know you're on lesson number eight, and you're going, I'm stuck there. You better master it, folks, because you're not going to lesson number nine. You better do what he's asking you to do. You're not going to go forward, I can guarantee you. You know what struck me a number of years ago was a correlation between the loss of spiritual sensitivity and what happens when that, what, what happens to us as a result of that. Let me, let me, you know, You ever have these moments in your life where you're reading the Bible? You know, I've read the Bible a lot. Just take my word for it. I've probably read it I don't know, I've been reading through it every year since 1976. Is that a little while? Then I'm studying it all the time. Then I'm preaching it. You know, I can go over and over and over again and then I come along, all of a sudden I go, I never saw this before. How in the world does that happen? You know, that's so amazing to me. I mean, I'm studying it. I'm getting ready to prepare a sermon. I've even preached on this text and I didn't get it. I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. One day I'm reading the book of Ephesians. And then it says this, so I tell, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Let me ask a question. Who are Gentiles? They're non-Jewish people. Is that what it means in this text here that you must no longer live as the non-Jewish people do? No, I don't think that's what it means there. I think he's using this term in the sense that if you were a Jewish person, you're a covenant person. And what I think he's saying here is you and I cannot live as if we're not in covenant with God. He's talking about believers and unbelievers. He's talking about being a covenant person. I'm in covenant with God. I cannot live like people who are not in covenant with God. And then he tells me how people who are not in covenant with God live. It says, in the futility of their minds. That's a very strong statement, folks. As a matter of fact, my mind runs like, a, like a, a concordance or, you know, remember the old Thompson Chain Bible where they used to link verses and, you know, you, they have all of these connected verses to a verse? My brain works like that. It's scary. I, have, I know the addresses of Scripture. I know where they are and I know how they connect together. And so my mind immediately goes to an Old Testament text, the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it tells you, here's a man who's writing who's negated God from his thinking, and he says, under the sun, this is what life is all about. It's totally meaningless. What is he saying? He's saying that when you're not in covenant with God, your thinking is futile. isn't, Isn't it interesting? Paul's writing this, but you can see how the Old Testament has shaped his thinking. He understands it. He's saying if you're not in relationship with God, your thinking is out of whack. As a matter of fact, I would argue that your thinking is inconsistent, illogical, and there's a form of insanity to it. And you go, what do you mean? People are not insane. I think they are. I think anytime I sin or someone sins, it is a form of insanity because we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting others. It's futile. Wow, well, how many say that's pretty strong language, Pastor? Well, I think the Bible has some strong language. I think we try to dummy it down so we don't have to you know, really deal with these issues. And then the next verse says, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why are they ignorant? Due to what? Hardening of their hearts. Of their hearts. Wow. Do you know what God said to his people in the wilderness today if you hear my voice? Don't harden your heart. You go, what was wrong wrong with those Israelites? God talks to them and they, they, they don't listen. And when you and I don't obey, we're hardening our heart. When I use that term, who comes to mind in the Bible? Somebody who had a hard heart. Pharaoh's the right answer. You know, everybody got it in every service. Boom, Pharaoh, why? Who is this guy? He's the king of Egypt. And God says to Moses, I want you to go down there and tell that king to let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, the king, Pharaoh means king. Pharaoh goes, you got to be kidding. You're going to show up here and let my, my whole economy collapse because I'm releasing all of these slaves? How many know people are highly motivated by money? Yeah, Pharaoh's going, no way am I letting free labor go. Forget it. And by the way, I worship all kinds of God. Who's your god anyways? Moses says, he's the god of all gods. I mean, your gods are no gods. And what happens is a power struggle between the gods of Egypt, which was a multiplicity of gods, and the one true and the living God. And so all of a sudden, Moses goes, you asked for it. And a plague comes along. How many have ever seen the Ten Commandments? Boom, first plague shows up. But what does Pharaoh do? He goes, cheap magician trick. Sends for his court magicians, they manufacture the same thing. He doesn't have, he doesn't even budge. He goes, Forget it. I'm not letting these guys go. And then we get the next one, and then the next one. And finally, they get to a a plague that, you know, the magicians are telling Pharaoh, Listen, this is not normal stuff. We can't produce this. This is God at work. You know, Pharaoh goes, I don't care. I'm not letting them go, you know. And then we finally get it down to where all of his officials are going, the country's in ruin. It's, you're allowing the whole nation to be devastated by these judgments against our nation. Let these people get out of here. And Pharaoh goes, no way. Because you see, Pharaoh thought he was a god. Are you getting a picture? And he, Folks, I want to tell you, when you and I resist God, when you and I disobey God, we are thinking that we are God. That's pretty strong, isn't it? And our hearts are hard. It says, in the, it says, why are they ignorant? Because they have a hard heart. But now watch what happens. The next verse. This is, ha- this is where my epiphany came from. Having lost all sensitivity, they gave themselves over to sensuality. I'm going to say something. Many people today lack sensitivity. How many say that's probably true? We're not very sensitive. Now, I know we don't try to offend people, but listen, we're just not sensitive. As a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest this, that most Canadians are not sensitive, they're sensual. How many would say that our culture has become very sensual? Very promiscuous. I mean, aren't, you, aren't we bombarded all the time by sensuality? How many think, yep, yeah, just nod your head, yep, yeah, you're right, Pastor, that's the way it is. That's because we lack sensitivity. We give ourselves over, because we're hard, we give ourselves over to that which is external. We're no longer what's, what's internal, we're interested in what's external. And not only are we giving, we've moved away from sensitivity, we've moved to sensuality, to indulge in every kind of impurity. That's one form of expression of a hard heart. But look at the second part. And when we become hard-hearted, what do we become full of? We become materialists we become greedy we start looking at the outer world there's no inner life there's a shallowness there's no depth, no substance you know I'm just describing it what, the way God describes it, he's the one that says this is the way it is, you know what, I buy it I'm watching it play out all the time, I'm going God you're so right you know I could, I could really preach now I could really go into all kinds of good meddling you know you know why I I didn't say this in the other service but I'll say it tonight you know why pornography is such a problem in relationships because it's showing the true condition of a man's heart and it's not sensitivity it's sensuality and you know what we're not connected to God right that's strong language pastor I think I'm right on this I think the scriptures are supporting this This is powerful stuff. We need to hear this. Then Jesus goes on to describe another condition of the heart of the hearer. It says in verse 13, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy, and when they hear it, but they have no root, and they believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. What a sad, sad story. You know, I have pastored in Red Deer, I came here in 1984. Do you know many people I see in this community that were one day sitting in these pews and now they're not even going anywhere? It grieves my soul. Let me go back and read it. They're the ones who received the word with joy when they heard it, but they have no root. They believed for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. That's a powerful statement. There's no substance. There's no depth. There's no root system. There's nothing that can hold them in a time of testing. As a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest this thought to us tonight that testing is a good thing. We don't think of it that way. But listen to what James says. He says, count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And when a test comes our way, we can have one or two responses. We We can groan. Ugh. Or do we have the little happy dance? Woohoo, test. You know, just won the lotto. Ha ha ha. You know, I don't think we d- usually do the little happy dance, but let me tell you why testing, we should get happy. Because tests reveal the true condition of our soul. You and I can think anything we want to about ourselves, but we don't even know what we're really like until we're tested. You want to know how strong you are? Get under this bench and press this. Oh, oh, I thought I was strong. (sighs) Boy, this is really heavy. I can't do it. It's a test. The test reveals the true condition of our soul. James has counted pure joy when you're tested. It's revealing to you what's really happening in you. Because most of the time we're faking ourselves out and most of us have to live with ourselves so we think we're a lot better than we really are. Ouch. No amens. This sermon was really challenging. I could tell from the first two services. But it's It's reality, but you know, James goes on to say, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. How many know? They that endure to the end shall be saved. Remember, these guys started out all right. They were joyful. They were excited. They were believers. They were moving, and then the test came, and they faltered. You know, how many, if you went to a doctor, and he said to you, listen, if you don't change your lifestyle and you don't change your eating habits and if you don't start exercising you're not going to last and you walk out of that doctor's office and you do what if you do nothing how, how many go that's not a bright thing right you're being told this is an opportunity make the adjustment or else do you know in the christian life you know we have to make those kinds of adjustments sometimes and there's pressure. True? Hey, people can pressurize you. They uh, yeah, can ha- have all kinds of things happening. You know, I've discovered something. I've, I've actually, in the last number of years, I've been weightlifting. You wouldn't know it, but I have been. You know, I am weightlifting. And believe it or not, I'm stronger today than I was 10 years ago, by a long shot. You go, how do you know that, Pastor? Because when I started weightlifting five years ago, I realized how weak I really was. And I'm weightlifting with more weights and heavier weights and more repetitions and all the rest of it. What's happening? I'm building what? Muscle. Muscle. And how do you build muscle? You have to have resistance. And how do you build spiritual muscle? You got to have resistance. But you know what we want? Oh, God, please give me an easy life. You know? Don't allow any trials in my life, God. I don't want a trial. I don't want, I want to, re- you know, my daughter, I love, I pick on her, poor Andrea, the greatest line ever. Lord, leave me alone. I want to be shallow, you know, because <laughs> she was going through a deep trial. But she's gone through a lot of trials since, so good on her. But you know, she was being honest. That's all she was, because let's, be, let's face it, we're all like that. God, I'm a whip. I don't want to go through this, Right? But James is saying it's going to develop something in your life. True perseverance. You know, I went through a real hard time, and year after year went by, and I'm going, God, I don't know what you're doing. And God says, I'm teaching you perseverance. Oh, this is what it looks like. It's called hardship and adversity. That teaches you these things. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? How many want to be mature? Mature. I want to be a mature believer. I want to really grow. Hey, you're going to go through a few things. See, I'm being honest with you. You know, welcome to the gym class. Really? Spiritual gymnasium. You know, I teach a course in our church called the Spiritual Disciplines. And I can guarantee if you come to this class, you will grow spiritually, especially if you put it into practice. I guarantee you will grow like you've never grown before. How's that? because it's a spiritual workout. God says, work out what I've worked in. See, I think we have to do something. That's not that we're earning something. See, we get a little confused. You know, we, we're so concerned about, you know, I'm trying to earn my salvation. You can't earn your salvation. It's a gift. But you know what God says? Don't be lazy. How many you know that laziness is a sin? Did you know that? How many knew that laziness is a sin? Raise your hand. You knew that. The rest of you didn't. I'm, teach, I'm, t- I'm telling you that. It's a sin. I can point it out. If you, if listen, you turn to the book of Hebrews, there's a verse that says laziness is a sin. I'll show it to you. Wow, really, pastor? Yep. You know, so I don't want to be, you know, sinning like that. Okay, let me move on to the third one. Third condition of the heart that Jesus describes is the soil where the weeds are overtaking the plants. And I'm going to finish with this little one. It says, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but they go on their way. They're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Last night, I was out with a number of families from our church, and uh, we're having dinner, and I got permission to share the story. stories. So I don't tell on people. I said, can I share this with the congregation? They said, pastor, by all means do that. I said, okay, good, thank you. And we were sharing a little bit of uh, our sp- our journey in life and they they came to a part where this person lost a spouse. Now, that's a, that's a very painful experience to death. And I remember it because I walked through this journey with this person and I saw the pain and I saw the heartache and I saw the spiritual struggle. And they said to me and this is they said this. The great lesson that I learned is I was filled with worry and anxiety. And I discovered something I could not hear from God. When we allow worry and anxiety to fill our lives, it chokes out our ability to hear God's voice. And this person got so desperate. They said, God, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to make a decision today that no matter what, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to just serve you even if I don't get it. I just want you to know For me, there's only one direction. It's towards you. And once he made that decision, by the way, worry is the absence of trust, if you don't know that yet. And when he moved away from worry to trust, God spoke into his life immediately. Isn't that amazing? He opened up his soul to God. Powerful. Listen to what this text says. It fell among the thorn stands for those who hear, but they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries. I'm gonna tell you right now, are you a child of God today? You have nothing to worry. You go, why? You have a father in heaven. I tell you, I'm a father. I will do anything for my children. Mark, you're a dad. Won't you do the same? See? You'll do anything for your kids. You know, if it was their life or my life, it would, I, I would, there's, no, there's a no-brainer. I've lived a lot longer. I love them so much more. I would give up my life for them. Wouldn't even think about it. It's a no-brainer for me. Well, you know what? God loves my daughters more than I do. And he did give up his life for them. I want you to know God loves you so much he gave up his life for you. Why can't he take care of you? What are you worrying about? So you don't have to worry not that good news? You can just cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. Stop worrying. God will take care of you. Listen to what David said. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. He says, I was young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging for bread. God will take care of you. Some of you need to hear that tonight. Stop worrying. God will take care of you. Let me give you the next one here. It says, the riches and pleasures of this life. They get caught up, you know, the next trip, the next this, the next that. Listen, I have been so blessed in my life. I have gone on wonderful vacations, had wonderful trips, but I'll tell you the secret. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to put God's kingdom first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else God can take care of. Isn't that good? First things first, let's have the right kind of a heart. So let's stand tonight as we close. You know, I love this last part. It says here at the very end, the last verse, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. One of my favorite verses of the Bible, I'm a pastor. Here's one of my favorite verses. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, What does it go on to say? For in due time you shall reap if you don't give up, if you don't faint. You know, we get impatient. We're doing the right thing. We're following Christ. We're making good decisions. But you know, we get impatient because we have desires. Isn't this true? And we want to take a shortcut. Impatience will cost you everything. Just keep trusting God. Keep waiting on God. Allow God to do things in his good season in your life. You know, sometimes he stretches things out. What's he doing? He's making you a better person. He's growing a great heart. Amen? I want to have a good heart. I want to have a great heart. You know my prayer in the days I get up? Lord, give me a tender heart, a loving heart, an obedient heart, a forgiving heart. You've got to pray these prayers, you know? Listen, I know the whole issue is about my heart. And by the way, when you talk about the heart, you're talking about the mind, emotions, and the will. You're talking, the Bible, when it talks about a heart, it's your total personality, okay? So when I'm talking about, you know, what's the condition of your heart, I'm talking about what's, what's your true condition. Well, you think. Your emotions, the whole thing goes into that, okay? My prayer is that you'll have a great heart. How many say, Pastor, I want a great heart. I want a noble heart. I want a good heart. I want to be a fruitful person. You know, I want to be like, you know, no matter how old I get, I want to be, I have a mentor. He's 91. He's still preaching and teaching. He's 92. He's still doing it. He's going to be 93 now. And now his body's starting to break down a little bit. He's going to have to slow down at 93. That's my, those are kind of the people I look to, see. You're going, what are you going on, Pastor? I'm going on the fact that, you know, if you have the right heart and you take care of yourself and you love God and you love people, you're going to have a great life and you're going to really flourish in the house of God. You know, people who don't recognize the importance of the house of God, They're totally missing it. I've read the Bible very carefully. I want to be a big olive tree. Do you know olive trees live and they keep reproducing and regenerating? They're amazing. you know, you got to do a little study on the olive tree. It'll really bless you. God says, you're going to be like an olive tree in the house of God. I go, that's me. I'm signing up. I want to be a big olive tree. Do you know some of those olive trees live to be 2,000 years old? I don't think I'll live on the earth that long. But I will live that long because I'm going to live in eternity. I'm not... You know, I have eternal life just like you do if you're trusting Christ. Amen? Isn't that amazing? I want to be this olive tree, God. Hallelujah. Don't you want to be producing? You know, I want to be productive. I want to be more fruitful now than I've ever been. See, I want to produce at a higher level, God. I've been around for a while. Let's produce at a higher level. You know, I was learning here, but now I'm still learning. But I want to produce at a higher level. I want to have a good heart. With every head bowed to that. How many say, you know, Pastor, that's me. I want to have the right kind of heart. Amen. Many of you are raising your hands. You want the right kind of a heart. you know. Maybe some of you are saying, you know, I struggle with some things, Pastor. You know, And we all do, by the way. Don't, don't let anybody fool you. We're all being bombarded by the culture. Isn't that a big giant? How many know it takes courage to go beyond... You know, I'm going to say it to this way. I'd rather be a good Christian than a good Canadian. And sometimes you may have to violate being a Canadian. You know, I was joking in the first service. You know, I went to a Latin American country. You know, these guys, they don't believe in lines. You know, the missionary said, Paul, you better stick your hand out there. If you don't get your hand up there and they take your ticket, we're going to miss this flight because they overbooked the plane and I'm telling you I was in line but there were people's hands that were right across my shoulder there was at least seven or eight people sticking their hands beyond mine I couldn't believe it you know I'm standing right there you know you had to get aggressive I go wow this is a different culture you know sometimes you you can't just be a Canadian you know I wouldn't have got on that airplane I had to get a little aggressive to get on the airplane I couldn't believe it bizarre listen, I think we're going to have to be sometimes more Christian and less Canadian if we're going to really impact our country. Because if I start talking to my neighbor and they get offended, you know, I'm saying to them, hey, you may get offended with me, but I care about you so much, I'm willing to risk offending you because I'm more concerned about your eternal well-being. Right? You know, I don't want them to say, well, why didn't you tell me? You know? Because maybe they're hungry. I don't know. Do you know where everybody's at? Do you know everybody's heart condition? You have no idea. Like my in-laws, you know. I'm talking to them and, you know, talking to them and talking to them. And it was like, am I getting through to them? And then they got saved one day, years later. Then they said to us, why didn't you tell us? They go, I was. But you guys weren't ready then. You know, true. You can see the little challenge here. How many are getting it? How many are hearing what the Spirit of God is saying to you tonight? What's He saying to you? Have a good heart.